0: Election College, episode 150, Faithless Electors. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session.
1: Now, your hosts... Jason Goff and Ben Smith.
0: Ben, we are 150 episodes into this adventure that we call Election College. Thank you, everyone, for, well, some of you have been with us since the beginning, and some of you have been with us for, well, this could be your first episode. We wanted to thank you for joining us because, wow, it's a privilege.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's nice to be able to get into your ears and your brain <laughs> every now and then <laughs> for those of you who, we, uh, who we've who been listening and to anybody who might be listening anew. Great. Thanks. We appreciate that too. Maybe the subject just interested you, but yeah, it's really cool. Thanks for giving us a platform to just hang out as cousins.
0: Yeah. And um, well, over the last several weeks, we've been getting a few hate messages and they are probably not from people who listen to the podcast because usually the hate messages are you need to be abolished and <laughs> we we hate that you exist and so on and we're thinking that they're probably talking about the electoral college hoping hoping that they are not us and that's cool you know if i'm not going to cry <laughs> <clears throat> okay i'm okay I I really am. <laughs> for those of you who have been with us for a while, uh, it's been a long time since we talked about the Electoral College specifically. That was way back in episode two. If you are just now beginning the series with us, because I know sometimes that happens, you find a podcast, you listen to the first several, and then you might hear, well, what do these people sound like today? So you might have just heard episode two. We promise that we're not going to overlap too much. But we are going to give some background about the Electoral College before we get to the faithless elector stuff.
1: Yeah, because it's important to know where things come from before we talk about where they're going or where they're at. Way back in 1787, there's the Constitutional Convention, and all the delegates are there, and they're trying to figure out how exactly we're going to have elections here in these United States of America, as we're going to call them, of course. And there's a committee. It gets formed. They're working stuff out. And they're trying to figure out, what do we do? So the idea is recommended that there be an election by a group of people, you know, maybe apportioned among the states, similar to the representatives in Congress. So you know that had all been discussed previously. And there's the Connecticut Compromise and the Three-Fifths Compromise and all that kind of stuff. We don't need to talk about those again. But they basically say, okay, so however many representatives they get in Congress, they should also get that many electors. There we go. It's settled. Done. Yeah.
0: So if you are at all a fan of the United States Senate and you are a history buff, you're going to love the Electoral College because really, the Electoral College kind of forms the basis of the Senate. And what I mean by that is, well, every state, no matter if your state has a population of two or 200 million, you're going to get two senators, right? Yay, Electoral College. Yay for our founding fathers. Now, if you're from the state that has 200 million people, you might be a little upset about that because what that means is come presidential election time, you have Equal representation with that state with two people in it from the Senate's perspective. So like it or not, that was the compromise that was reached, and we are neutral. Yeah, Or at Uh, least we'll try to be (laughs) as neutral as we possibly can be when discussing it.
1: Hey, if you want to get some more background on what was going on in the guys' heads whenever they were putting this stuff together, uh, you can go back and check out the Federalist Papers. Uh, You can look at number 39, which James Madison wrote, and number 68, which Alexander Hamilton wrote, and you can see what they were thinking about how the Electoral College should be formed, why it should exist, what its purpose should be, et cetera. And remember that those documents, the Federalist Papers, were there as a way to essentially explain to the country, why the things that were in the Constitution should be in them, because remember, this is all new to everybody. So if you feel like, you know, you're talking about this, but why would anybody think we needed that? Well, hear it from the men themselves. Uh, They do a way better job than we will do. Right.
0: (laughs) And when it comes to reading that, the original intent Mm -hmm. of the Founding Fathers, keep in mind that their perspective was quite a bit different. And so being either for the Electoral College or against it, I think we can all agree it was a different time. So uh, like it or not, it was based on the fact, well, there are several factors among them included, well, how are you going to select a president? Let's say you live in Georgia and there's somebody running from Maine you're probably not going to be very familiar with the person from Maine because, well, communication isn't that good, and you're going to want to run somebody who you know. And that's part of why the Electoral College was instituted. It was also instituted, as we um, said before, because of having each state have some sort of representation in the federal government. But the whole perspective of it is that The United States of America is not a democracy. I know we hear that a lot. Even in Washington, Ben, when we were there, you hear democracy, democracy, democracy. Well, actually, it's a constitutional republic.
1: Right. Whether that's good or bad, we're not saying. It's just what you can call it a democracy if you want, but it's not true. So just, you know, at least use the right terminology.
0: Yeah. And we've lost some of that. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that with different amendments and so on, where the senators became popularly elected as opposed to the state legislatures selecting who would become the senator from a particular state. So we have lost some of that original intent. So it is possible that the United States could go on without the Electoral College, but it's still one of those things that founding fathers like Alexander Hamilton championed and That's where you can see his thumbprint, probably the biggest on our country right now.
1: So the president and the vice president then are elected by the Electoral College. And at this point in our history, we have 538 presidential electors. And they come from, of course, all 50 states and Washington, D.C. And so depending on what state or district you're from and what kind of laws they have there will determine how your state's electors get picked. Some of them are picked by the party. Some of them are voted by the people. But all of them are set aside as the electors for that state. The way you get
0: these electors is that each state has the different chapters of the various political parties. And in the months prior to election day, the different political parties get together and say, hey, these people have been pretty good to us. (laughs) We like them. (laughs) We want them to represent the state should our party win.
1: So some states allow their electors to be nominated at a party convention And uh, other states allow these campaigns to uh, have each candidate come up and they are chosen by the party. They're usually hardline party people to um, be candidates for the Electoral College. And then in the primaries, typically they are voted into uh, that position for each party.
0: Yeah. So when I first heard about Electoral College, I'm picturing, you know, people in caps and gowns and they're marching into the US Capitol and there's this big processional and I'm a little weird. But that's what I think of when I think of electoral college. But (laughs) it's not really a group of people who get together every four years. Each state has their delegation, right? And these electors meet at their state capitals and well, the people in the District of Columbia, they I don't know, they go to Starbucks or something like that and <laughs> and, and and hang out for, for a few moments and say, this is who we're going to vote for. But uh, that happens on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. Sounds pretty convenient, right? So they get together and they cast their votes on separate ballots for president and vice president.
1: Right. So they get together and each state gets together seven different certificates of ascertainment, and they list out the candidates for president and vice president. They list out the electors that have pledged each direction and the total votes that each candidate has received. And the certificate gets sent. The National Archivist in Washington, D.C. gets that. And, you know, they have to have the state seal and everything. And then those are put into, uh, they're, they're categorized and added up. The electors also send uh, certificates of their vote and copies of them to the president of the Senate, who, as Jason mentions very often, is the vice president of the United States. They send them to the archivist, as I mentioned. They send them to the secretary of state of their state, and they send them to the chief judge of the United States District Court, um, where, you know, that's it's in their district. Yeah. So
0: then a staff member for the president of the Senate, and this is the outgoing vice president. Incumbent, yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind, that it's still the previous Congress. So right now, it's December of 2016 when we're recording this. We are talking about the incumbent Congress. So the staff member of the vice president, also known as the president of the Senate, collects the certificates of vote, and prepares them for a joint session of Congress. So these certificates are arranged, they're unopened, um, they're set in alphabetical order, and they're placed into two mahogany boxes. So Alabama through Missouri, and that includes uh, the District of Columbia, are placed in one box, and then Montana through Wyoming, are placed in the other box. Now, before 1950, the Secretary of State's office oversaw the certifications, but there's a newer office called the Office of Federal Register, and they are in the archivist's office. Review them, and they make sure the documents are sent to the archive, and Congress matches all of that. So all these formalities are going on. Meanwhile, the votes are in the
1: envelopes. Jason, wouldn't it be kind of crazy if um, you were the one, like you were the office aide that was in charge of those mahogany boxes and you lost one of them or something? Yeah, That, that would stake to be that. I bet you'd be fired pretty quickly. You
0: probably <laughs> would. I wonder if you have to wear white gloves when you handle it. Oh,
1: yeah, that's true. It's really interesting how all these things are in place. And you can see that, you know, a lot of this at this point is formality because it'd be really easy if... You know, in our, in our modern time, like for all of the electors to go to one place and like sign a thing on the computer and it sends it off and it's all done. But these are all the processes that have been in place for hundreds of years to choose elect or to choose the president and the vice president by electors. So it's just kind of cool that these things are still carried out uh, in kind of, uh, at least to me, in kind of a almost ritualistic uh, way of doing things.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson would love the fact that we do this formal stuff. <laughs> He'd probably sure. be like, "Yeah, that's awesome, guys." No, I'm I'm speaking as a fool. <laughs> Actually, John Adams though, probably would really dig this. Okay, so what we're really talking about in this episode, and I know a lot of you are saying, "Finally." So, thank you for bearing with us. <laughs> is the fact that there are people in our history who have been called faithless electors. And they are members of the Electoral College who are like, you know what? We're not going to vote for the person we pledged that we would vote for.
1: Right. And you have to remember, and I'm not justifying any actions or not justifying them, whatever. Uh, One thing to remember, though, is when the candidate pledges that they will, in fact, vote for a particular candidate... Or um, party, they're saying, I'll vote for whoever my party that I'm with chooses. They, at that time, unless something very crazy has happened, don't know for positive exactly which candidate that will be. So uh, for instance, if you have four people at that point still in the primaries, you're saying, well, whichever one of these wins, I'll vote for. Uh, Not necessarily, I'll vote for this one particular individual. So uh, there is some uh, I think, argument for why you would want to break your pledge, even though you made it, because you were not expecting the person who won to win. Um, that's not just a commentary on all the discussion here in modern times. It's just, um, it's a it's a common th- theme among those who have been faithless electors in the past.
0: Yeah. So we're not saying faithless elector to be like, oh man, these people are the most awful people who have ever existed. What you'll find is there's been people who, uh, like that situation that Ben just described, who, because of their personal integrity, have felt that that is totally consistent with being honest. And as we go through some of the situations that have occurred in our history, it makes perfect sense why you would have faithless electors. So let's get into it. There have been 157 faithless electors in our nation's history.
1: Right. So 71 of the votes, the 157 faithless elector votes were changed because get this, the candidate that they were going to vote for actually died before the date when the Electoral College was able to cast their vote. So, uh, I mean, that's probably like the most, the best reason possible to, to change your votes as an elector is if the person you were supposed to vote for no longer is a viable candidate. So, yeah. 71 votes were changed because the candidate died before they were able to cast their vote for them.
0: Yeah. So what you're going to find is, well, if you've listened to any of our original series episodes where we talk about the vice presidents in the 1800s, it didn't go very well for those gentlemen. And uh, our friend Horace Greeley, who had the massive, awesome, um, some will say sporty, neck beard. <laughs> Yeah, he lost the election, but certainly there were people, well, he won certain states, so he did have electors, and many of those decided, well, Horace is dead, so we're going to need to figure out another way to go. But as recently as 2004, uh, there was a Democratic elector from Minnesota who said, you know what, I'm going to vote for... John Kerry's running mate, John Edwards. And uh, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. So I'm going to vote for Edwards as president and uh, we'll see what happens here. And of course, John Kerry was the Democratic candidate and uh, still lost the election.
1: So one of the uh, electors in Minnesota said, well, this had to have been a mistake. So I'm pretty glad that the Electoral College wasn't separated by one vote because it would be Very easy to screw up everything if you were that elector. Uh, In 2000, Barbara Lett-Simmons, who was a Democrat from the District of Columbia, didn't cast her vote because she wanted to protest the lack of congressional representation for Washington, D.C. So that's certainly a way to uh, get some notoriety. She was also the first elector who had abstained from voting since 1832. Uh, she didn't end up affecting the outcome of the election, but here we are talking about her and her reason, which was, "Why don't we have representation when we live like half a mile from where they make all the decisions?"
0: All right. Throughout the 20th century, a lot of the people who refused to vote for the particular candidate were just like, "Hey." I don't like this particular candidate, and that was such as the case um, in the late 60s and early 70s when Nixon was the Republican candidate. Uh, You had Republican electors saying, I just can't do it. I'm going to vote for somebody else, and then backing up previous to that, you would see it in the middle part of the 20th century with delegates from the South who said, we cannot vote for our party's candidate. You think about it, the mid-20th century, the Democratic Party was very divided. The Northern Democrats were quite a bit different than Southern Democrats. And certain, especially Southern Democrats, would say, I can't possibly vote for this person. I'm going to vote for a a Democratic person from the South instead.
1: So Jason, that's a really good point because Uh, So we have that same thing happen in the mid 20th century happens in the mid 19th century as well, you know, early to mid 19th century, because the North and South were have never been more divided than they were during the mid 1800s. And even earlier than that as well, Uh, the, you know, the the 23 electors from Virginia say, you know, we're not going to support Richard Johnson from Kentucky. He might have lived with an African-American woman. So. We certainly can't allow him to be president. And so there's no majority in the Electoral College uh, in in this year. And the decision goes to the Senate. And of course, in the end, the Senate votes for Johnson as the vice president. But it gets kind of interesting just because they have these differences purely based on whether they're from the North or the South, it seems.
0: Yeah, that was the 1832 election. That's something you don't really hear a lot about. You think of, well, the 1832 election, what do you think of? You think of Andy Jack and uh, you don't think of some of the other people who might've played a role in that election. So Marty, he had Marty and and the gang, but completely different time. It's Uh funny to think about how in the 1800s, you had a lot more faithless electors and um, sometimes the reason wasn't too different, (laughs) but- but now it's seen as as something that doesn't happen quite as often. Uh, you know, we had mentioned how our friend Horace Greeley, he passed away before, uh, well, between the election and, and the electoral college vote. Uh, you had a similar situation happen in 1912 where Taft's vice presidential candidate, James S. Sherman, died before the election, and uh, he, of course, was Taft's vice president, and they both were running for re-election. Uh, didn't turn out too well for Taft, but uh, eight Republican electors had pledged their votes for him, uh, but they actually voted for Nicholas Murray Butler instead because it's kind of hard to vote for somebody who's passed on.
1: Yeah, you could do it. I mean, it happens actually more often uh, in state and local elections. It seems to happen fairly often, surprisingly. But uh, there have been a couple instances where people just totally, up, they were part of the Electoral College and they, for whatever reason, decided to to buck the system. And this one's interesting to me. In 1820, there was a man named William Plummer Sr. And he was supposed to vote for the Democratic-Republican candidate, James Monroe. And instead, he votes for John Quincy Adams as we know, also Democratic-Republican, even though he was not running in the 1820 election. And he basically said, I don't think anybody should be elected unanimously other than George Washington. So I guess that makes sense. (laughs) If you already think they're going to be elected unanimously, then do whatever you want.
0: So if we're going to talk about way back when, uh, as early as 1796, you had a faithless elector, and that was Samuel Miles. He was an elector from Pennsylvania. He was the first one to break the pledge for a vote for a candidate. He decided that he was going to cast his ballot for Thomas Jefferson instead of his rotundity, John Adams. And this upset a lot of people. Um, And one newspaper actually said, quote, What do I choose Samuel Miles to determine for me whether John Adams or Thomas Jefferson shall be president? no, I chose him to act, not to think. And so that might sum it up for the ages when it comes to electors. Uh, A lot of people genuinely think that on election day, when they are voting for the president, that they are actually voting for the president when actually you're voting for somebody to elect a president on your behalf. And um, yeah, I would think most people would want their electors just to act on their behalf and not to really think about it too much. So we mentioned in passing a couple of times about Horace Greeley dying before the Electoral College met, and yeah, he did lose the election to Grant, but you still vote for, the loser still gets votes in the Electoral College, provided that they've won a state. And there were 63 electors who had decided that they wanted Horace Greeley to be president. So what happens in 1872 is 63 of the 66 electors who were to select Greeley decide, well, we're not going to vote <laughs> for him. Uh, 17 electors just <laughs> state home. They said, no, we're, we're not going to vote. And then the other 43 electors split their votes among the other Democratic
1: candidates. Right, yeah. And I mean, it turns out that it probably wouldn't have affected things, even if they had all gone the same exact way, because Grant was so far ahead out there. But it certainly would have made for an interesting time nowadays. You can only imagine what would have happened.
0: Definitely.
1: Hey, well, uh, you're about to witness history here next week, if you're listening real time, that is, as the electors, no matter what the outcome is go to vote for the president of this current election. And so if not only for, you know, being culturally aware and stuff like that, but just to see how things play out as far as history and how these processes go and to actually fact check us and make sure that we were right. Make sure you pay attention to the whole ballot casting that the electors do this year. Uh, You should, you know, be culturally informed and stay up to date on things. And it's kind of... It'll be kind of interesting, I think.
0: Yeah. Be on alert because sometimes crazy things can happen in the Electoral College. You know, it's the vice president who certifies the winner for the Electoral College. And towards the end, it's kind of like a a wedding, Ben. (laughs) Does Mm -hmm. anybody object to this? And um, the vice president will say in this joint session of Congress, he'll say, Upon such reading of any such certificate or paper, the president of the Senate shall call for objections, if any. And the law reads, if one member of the House and Senate each object, guess what happens? It's pandalirium all over the place.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it goes into all sorts of different sessions and uh, people get to give speeches and, yeah, lots of crazy stuff happens.
0: Yeah. So... Whether you hope that happens or not, we will see. It's going to happen on December 19th.
1: Also, what can happen on December 19th is that Election College shoots up through the charts on iTunes because, and we're already up there pretty good, actually, which thank you to all of you, but (laughs) will be in part due to the fact that you will have left us a review on iTunes. And you can do that by going over to electioncollege.com slash iTunes or slash review, whatever you remember, and leave us a, you know, a short 45 to 90 second review that is just very heartfelt, talks about how much you love us, talks about how we are like brothers to you. Uh, we would really appreciate oh, that. Wow. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, Jason, do you want to you wanna give an, uh, an example of one yeah, of these? Yeah, I did
0: want to um, give a shout out to Elsa, who gave us a review this past week. She said, I've started binging on these episodes, which is awesome, thank you, and I love them all. I'm currently listening to the episodes on the era of his accidency. That's a fun era. So there's still a long ways to go can't wait to catch up on everything. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Elsa. That really keeps us going. Appreciate that.
1: We would also appreciate it if you interacted and followed us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find us in all those places at election college.
0: Yep. And don't forget. It's probably, well, I have bad news. I have to be definitive on this. If you order an ugly Christmas sweater, t-shirt from us, well, at this point, you're not going to get it in time for Christmas, but you will have it in time for the Super Bowl. So if you'd like to check out one of those, we have John Quincy Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and Andrew Jackson. Head over to electioncollege.com
1: store. Thanks, everybody. And we will talk to you next time.